Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Hello there, everybody. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and this is The Jack Pod, where On Point News analyst Jack Beatty helps us connect history, literature, and politics in a way that brings his unique clarity to the world we live in now. Hello there, Jack. Hello, Meghna. Well, believe it or not, we've reached episode 10, Jack. And today, before I ask you for the headline, I thought, look, Jack is such a legend that he deserves some walk-on music. So here it is. <laughs> Live free or die, oh Lord, <laughs> tell me why can't they say seatbelts fast in their Oklahoma is okay. Vacation land sounds mighty great. I wouldn't mind stamping out the garden state. It's enough to make me cry. Live free or die. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jack. I, I <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. I couldn't help it. That's the 1977 Bill Morrissey classic, Live Free or Die, uh, because I understand that your headline today has to do with the Granite State. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Uh, hard to top that. Yes, the headline is Last Exit or Live Free or Die. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, the story that you want to tell is a really interesting one, and I believe it starts in 1952 with this fellow. I have invited you here because I have a, an announcement to make. I am a candidate for the Democratic nomination for President of the United States. So, Jack, who was that? That was Estes Kefauver, then a freshman senator from uh, Tennessee, uh, who had come to public prominence uh, actually on television, if you can believe it, that early on in a series of hearings on uh, organized crime uh, seen by millions. And uh, President Truman, whom he was going to run against, referred to him as Senator Cow Fever. <laughs> uh, but uh, Truman was in real trouble in 1952. Uh, the Korean War, McCarthy, Joe McCarthy rampant, uh, charging that uh, Truman's uh, Secretary of State, calling him the Red Dean, Dean Acheson, and mm. that the State Department was chock-a-block with uh, communist sympathizers. Uh, and, of course, there was inflation. The, 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 uh, the, the, the line of the hour was, uh, to err is Truman. He was, he was very unpopular in the 30s. Some polls had him in the 20s. And seeing his opportunity, young, well, I guess he was certainly was younger than, um, he was in his 40s, younger than uh, President Truman, Estes Kefauver challenged Truman in the 1952 New Hampshire primary. Uh, he was known for wearing a raccoon cap, <laughs> and he, part he participated in dog sled competitions. Uh, and he won uh, the primary in uh, the middle of March by 10 points. Wow. And 18, 18 days later, at a Jefferson-Jackson Day dinner, speaking before thousands of party faithful, Truman announced he would not run for re-election. Uh, New Hampshire Democrats had spoken and essentially had, had given the boot 
to uh, one of an incumbent Democratic president. Wow. Okay. So I gather this is your theme here about that New Hampshire voters aren't really good at picking Democratic nominees or Democratic presidents, I should say. No, they're not good at that, but they're really practiced at giving giving Democratic presidents oh. the boot. Okay. <laughs> Okay, so because obviously 1952 wasn't the only year that happened. Then the next year, or at least one, another memorable one, was in 1968, right, Jack? 1968, uh, Lyndon Johnson was in serious trouble in the 30s in polls. The uh, <laughs> the Tet Offensive had just happened. Walter Cronkite had made his his memorable uh, "How can we win this war? It's going nowhere" comment on television. Uh, LBJ was uh, beside himself on what to do, and uh, a, a an obscure, then obscure senator from uh, Minnesota, Gene McCarthy, challenged him. Uh, ran, oh, entered the uh, New Hampshire primary. He had at that time four hundred and fifty dollars in campaign money in his war chest, but. He was an anti-war candidate, and something like 3,000 college students flooded the state. And the, the famous, the famous uh, slogan was, we got clean for Gene. They shaved their beards and got haircuts. Hillary Clinton, who didn't need to shave her beard, was one of them. Uh, and, 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 and McCarthy, who was a notably diffident candidate, uh, he, uh, and, and given the literary turns of phrase and, and would— Rather than campaign, sometimes would would have lunch with Robert Lowell, the poet. Mm. Anyway, this very diffident man, uh, who was being denounced by LBJ uh, ads on the air as giving aid and comfort to the communists, he he came in at forty two percent of the vote, and Johnson hadn't even put his name on the ballot. It was just assumed he was going to win. And so there was a write-in for Johnson. Well, he got 50%, beating 42, but the pundits all said, oh, my God, this is terrible. He was supposed to have gotten, you know, two-thirds of the vote. Uh -huh. uh, and within just uh, a few weeks, uh, LBJ, as we're going to hear, withdrew. Yeah. So that is so fascinating, Jack, because you're exactly right. It was March. 1968, uh, that LBJ makes that announcement. And we have a moment of his speech here. And what I find really interesting is, you know, in light of him not having a great showing against the anti-war candidate of Senator Eugene McCarthy, in LBJ's speech, he actually first points to the grinding war in Vietnam as his reason. With America's future under challenge right here at home, with our hopes and the world's hopes for peace and the balance every day. I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek, and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. That is so interesting to me, Jack, based on what you said. I mean, LBJ there is claiming, well, being president is too consuming a task, 
which actually I would agree with. But he's saying that's the reason why he wouldn't run again. Yes, it was a, it, you know, I'm, I'm doing the patriotic thing. And immediately his polls went up about 15% once he had announced that he was out of the race. But, you know, he confided a dream he had to Doris Kearns. And this dream really sums up the, the, uh, his psyche at the time. In the dream, he says, I'm being chased on all sides by a giant stampede of rioting blacks, demonstrating students, squalling professors and hysterical reporters. And then the final straw, the thing I feared from the first day of my presidency was coming true. Robert Kennedy had openly announced his intention to reclaim the throne in the memory of his brother. And the American people, swayed by the magic of his name, were dancing in the streets. What a dream. What a terrible dream for LBJ. Wow. Oh, wow. Oh, that's incredible, Jack. And now suddenly just I'm reminded that he gave that speech that we played in March of 68, and Robert Kennedy was assassinated in June. Just three months later. Yes. Oh, yes. wow, incredible. Yes. Okay, so before we get on to the next example that you have of how good uh, New Hampshire Democrats are at giving the boot to uh, incumbent presidents who are seeking to win again, I just want to ask, when was the last time that uh, the Democrat who won the New Hampshire primary also won the White House? You have to go back to 1976 and Jimmy Carter. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they've had a long dry streak then. They certainly have. They certainly have. And uh, before that, of course, it would be John Kennedy. <clears throat> okay, I got it. So I understand that next you want to talk about Joe Biden. But before you do, Jack, I just have to I have to relate a personal anecdote. Uh, because in the New Hampshire primary of the 2020 presidential election, I was up in New Hampshire uh, covering it, and I was there on the, the the last day of campaigning, which I guess was primary day, um, in, in New Hampshire, and it was nighttime. I went to a, Joe Biden's last rally in New Hampshire that night, and he gave his normal stump speech. Uh, it was kind of interrupted a couple of times by some QAnon believers, but they got past that. He gives his speech, and then I noticed at the moment it was kind of odd because he left very quickly. And lo and behold, it was because he left New Hampshire even before they started counting votes so he could go fly down to South Carolina. That's how baleful his prospects were yeah. in the Granite State. So so tell me how Biden fits into your picture about uh, incumbent presidents and the Granite State primary. Well, in 2020, he came in fifth yeah. in the Democratic primary and skulked out of the state, you're right, with leaving just his full-on supporters in a diminished state. <laughs> uh, uh, well, you know, I don't. it's unnecessary to go on about his troubles. I mean, it, it, it's just clear. Um, reporting in the Boston Globe, uh, uh, one one uh, veteran reporter says, in 20 years of of uh, covering uh, local Democrats, he's he's never seen less engagement for a presidential candidate. Joe is 73 percent favorable among Democrats in um, in New Hampshire, but only 30 percent are enthusiastic about him. Uh, he's um, he, 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 
and, and the expectations of what he should do in New Hampshire are very high. One National Democrat uh, told Amy Walters, Biden winning by anything less than 20 points is scary territory. Wow. Well, here's the problem. Here's the problem. Biden has, has demoted the New Hampshire primary. It was always the mm. first primary in the nation. But he said, no, I don't want Iowa and I don't want New Hampshire. I want the first primary and the one I'm first one I'm going to enter to be South Carolina, mm -hmm. where they love me. And New Hampshire didn't take well to this. And New Hampshire state law requires that it be the first primary. And in January, late January, it is going to hold the first primary. Joe Biden is not on the ballot and there will be a write-in campaign for him. But that leaves open the possibility of a repeat of what happened to LBJ, that his opponent, and we'll get to the opponent, that his opponent will be able to clean up and that LBJ and that Biden, by putting his by agreeing to the write-in, uh, will will suffer a stinging and humiliating mm. and perhaps president ending presidency ending defeat. Mm. Now, before we get to uh, uh, the question of opponents again, just I, my hats off to the Granite State. They give me so many good repertorial anecdotes to share because losing that status as uh, first in the nation primary is just so anathema to New Hampshire. That I, several years ago, a former New Hampshire Secretary of State told me once, by God, if we have to hold the primary before Christmas, we will. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope it doesn't come to that. Um, but so, Jack, you, 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 named, you mentioned uh, opponents uh, to Biden in the, in the primary season. Tell me more. Well, there is only one declared opponent. He is uh, actually about 30 years younger than President Biden, and that's a big part of his candidacy. His name is Dean Phillips. He's a third-term congressman from the Minneapolis suburbs, the more prosperous suburbs. Uh, his district went by 20 points for Biden. Uh, and he's uh, he's the heir to a, um, a distillery fortune, and he is himself what is called a gelato tycoon. <laughs> he went into the gelato business himself and made a lot of money. Um, uh, and he is running well. He his he basically is running right at Biden's age. He says we don't have a Democratic Party problem; we have a Joe Biden problem. He even adds the president is perhaps the only Democrat who can lose to Trump. He, does it, he says he's an eternal optimist and running for president, I guess you have to be. Uh, and uh, he's, uh, he's bipartisan. He's the 13th most bipartisan member of Congress. So he's a, he's a uh, centrist. And his slogan against Bi uh, Biden, aside from, you know, Biden's great but too old, is Make America affordable again. He's mm. trying to exploit the inflation issue. Okay. So it sounds like you're, I don't know, are you sounding a warning here, Jack, to New Hampshire Democrats about, you know, beware of your own history of forcing incumbent presidents out of a re-election race? Yes and no. Uh, because the, the Phillips candidacy, you know, pundits say, uh, the guy's got no issue. You can't, you know, Gene McCarthy had an issue. Who are? Uh, uh, he's got no issue. So it, it, the campaign doesn't make any you know, intellectual sense. He's got an immense issue, saving democracy from this uh, 
authoritarian nightmare that Donald Trump fills out for us every week in more and more uh, appalling detail. You know, came out last week, his people are talking about invoking the Insurrection Act on the first day of his presidency to slap people in jail and put down protesters. This is what we're on track to. And to prevent that, uh, Dean Phillips is saying you can't do it with old man Biden. And the polls this week, which were just terrible for Joe Biden, even he's even um, behind among Democrats in a negative rating in California, of all places. Joe Biden is not the man, according to Dean Phillips, to to uh, beat Trump and save democracy. The second rap on Phillips is he's not big enough. I mean, even if he were the nominee, he's too obscure. No one knows anything about him. That's missing the point. He is not. He's a placeholder. As if Biden, if he wins big in New Hampshire and Biden withdraws, you're going to have Governor Whitmer. You're going to have Governor Newsom. You're going to have, uh, you know, Senator this and Governor that. They're going to get into the race thick and fast. Mm-hmm. And uh, and 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 Phillips will be sort of remembered as a John the Baptist, uh, but not as the. Uh, as the Messiah. Oh, okay. So folks, this is what we want your feedback on this week. What do you make of Jack's warning about, let's call call it early showings in very early uh, primaries and caucuses for an incumbent president running for re-election? Do you agree or disagree with Jack that... uh, that history shows that an incumbent president, an incumbent Democratic president, let me put a finer point on it, ought to be uh, aware <laughs> of how they do early in the race. So that's what we want to hear from you. And as always, send us your message via the On Point Vox Pop app. If you don't have it, just go wherever you get your apps and, and look for On Point Vox Pop and send us your thoughts and responses to this week's Jackpod. Now, as I say every week, it is absolutely true, Jack, that we listen to all of the feedback that comes uh, to this show and specifically to the jackpot. And for all of those naysayers out there, I have proof. I have proof that we listen to them all. Because last week, Jack, when you talked about the unintended consequences of the 1965 Immigration Act, we found this rare, incredible basically unprecedented message emerging from the depths of listener feedback. I disagree with Jack. Disagree with Jack? Oh my God, when we come back, Jack, we will solve that mystery. So that's when we come back in just a moment. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. We're back. And Jack, before we get to listener feedback, uh, I want to just make a quick correction from a previous jackpod. You and I had talked about mass shootings and the failure of the government to protect the people. And in that jackpod, we mentioned that only Hawaii and North Dakota had not experienced mass shootings. And a very keen-eared listener shared with us that sadly, Hawaii has had a mass shooting. It was 1999 in Honolulu, Mm. which Mm. leaves only North Dakota as the lone state that has not yet suffered that tragedy. So just wanted to offer that that correction there and appreciation to our uh, intelligent and very uh, detail-oriented listeners. All right. So last week, we talked about immigration in the United States, and you mentioned specifically the 1965 Immigration Act and its legacy and unintended consequences, as you talked about. So let's start uh, with Susie Lee, who heard that jackpot and shared this. She immigrated to the United States from Taiwan in the 1980s and describes herself as being an early beneficiary of the immigration reforms of 65. Nevertheless, she told us that she agrees with you, Jack, that there have been unintended consequences. And so therefore, here are some reforms she'd like to see. Number one, abolish the asylum system, which has been grossly abused over the years. Number two, restrict family reunification policy to first-degree relatives. Number three, restore the old national origin quota system with preferences given to skilled workers and the labor shortage areas in the U.S. market. Well, Susie Lee's recommendations, Jack, to me sound like pretty much an overturning of most of the things in the 65 Immigration Act. But your thoughts? Oh, yeah, especially on the asylum um, question. You know, I think people have pointed out that now uh, most of the the bulk of people who are crossing the border are are not trying to run away from the the border guards they're surrendering to them and it, and their families often and they're surrendering and saying we are applying for asylum and our laws say well they have a right to do that uh, but but that law that asylum law as i looked into it which sort of was formulated in the late 70s early 80s somewhere in there it was all about individuals, you know, uh, political refugees who came and could make a case that they were being persecuted for political views in their homelands. It was never conceived as a highway for mass immigration. That's what it is becoming and has become. And one of the things the Republicans are, you know, there's an issue now about funding the government. One of the things they may insist on is a pretty drastic reform just such that Susie wants in the asylum system. The Democrats, Biden people are neuralgic about that because the, you know, Hispanic and other progressive groups don't want that. Uh, Mm. But, you know, politically, it would be it would be so desirable for Biden to do that. No one's going to run against him from the left. 
but apparently the White House doesn't see it quite that way. And, uh, and it would be really awful if, if the asylum issue should be the thing that shuts down the government. Mm. Okay. Well, here's a couple more. Rebecca Rose Langston is from Northampton, Massachusetts, and she sent us a message saying that the thought of a merit-based immigration system, actually much like the one Susie Lee just mentioned, that that makes her extremely uncomfortable. And Rebecca says she also believes it's not going to make racism or discrimination problems any better in this country. I think that instead of a lot of white people in this country especially poorer or working class white people feeling like these brown foreigners have stolen their jobs, that instead they would feel like, oh, wow, these brown foreigners are now the rich people in charge and have all this power and um, we're under them. So I think that either way, the racism and xenophobia would manifest just in a different fashion. Interesting. And here's Lance from Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, He had this take on the 65 Immigration Act. He says it was good policy at the time, but I suppose as all 50, 60-year-old legislation needs, it needs some reform, Lance says, to meet the needs of the United States as a nation today. When we fast forward today and we look at the landscape of the U.S., it's, it's no longer the same. The consequences that you see now is that you have Cities like Chicago and working class people there and the people there in the communities are competing with jobs, with immigrants. I think that it's becoming an issue for working class Americans. So, Jack, what do you think about both Lance and Rebecca? Well, Rebecca's point uh, first, I think she's making, (laughs) you know, a, a profound point. She's saying that Visible progress by immigrants <laughs> is not going to tamp down uh, resent, ethnic resentment. We've been using Arlie Russell Hochschild's book, Strangers in Their Own Land, a survey of what working class voters in um, Louisiana, white working class voters, were thinking a few years ago. And she makes, here's what they see, here's the way they see the world. They, they derive their status, their place of where they stand in line or in, in, the, in, the, in importance in terms of who's at the bottom. And they, they <laughs> it's hard to put it this way, they want people of color at the bottom so that their whiteness can emerge as an advantage as, well, I don't have much in the world, but at least I'm not one of them. That's the, that's the status symbol that they have. And that's why uh, someone like Barack Obama, you know, with all his brilliance and merits, was in fact challenging to their status because in their worldview, people of color have to stay at the bottom. This is a very profound and difficult uh, uh, observation, I think, that mm. Rebecca has made. Okay. So here are a couple of more, because, again, we get a lot of responses every single time we do this podcast. Uh, And they're from all over the country, which I just love. This is John Garland, who called us from San Antonio, Texas. And um, he says the balance in the immigration system might be struck by focusing on where needs still exist in the U.S. labor market. I think the truth might be that Many people who find themselves in the United States would just as soon stay in their home countries, but would also like, perhaps even need, access to employment, which 
might be available to them here in the U.S. if our laws were such. So by the way, that was John's response to the question we asked about what reforms would people like to see, if any, in the 1965 Immigration Act. And similarly, we got a message from Howard, our friend from Elkhart, Indiana. I'm half tempted to to just start a frequent segment called The View from Elkhart, Howard, because he calls every week. But here's what reform he's looking for on immigration policy. The reform I would like to see would be stiffening the penalty for companies that illegally hire people that are not supposed to be able to work in the country. It is already against the law, but the penalty is very minor and we don't enforce it. By bringing in a whole bunch of undereducated people working for the entry-level jobs into the workforce, now you're lowering the wages because you have twice as many people competing for a low-wage job. Go ahead, Jack, your thoughts. Well, he's he, he's very right about the um, how... Um, um, flexible, you could say, this. the employer sanctions are. Uh, it, many employers, according to studies, just see it, the fines, which are not all that stiff, as, quote, a cost of doing business. And they're spared criminal prosecution, which Congress included in the 1990 law or 1990s law that reshaped this system. And uh, but But it's not enforced because why? Business wants the cheap labor. Business contributes to political campaigns. The politicians do uh, what their, as it were, employers suggest. So, yes, uh, a stiffer uh, uh, employee employee ver- verification system would be eminently desirable. And the loophole in the net law now apparently is the word knowingly. The uh-huh. employer can say, gee, I didn't knowingly. They showed me valid uh, Social Security a card. I didn't knowingly, you know, uh, hire this person. Well, a reform to get get that would be tough on that would uh, it would certainly discourage, um, uh, you know, the, the exploitation of immigrant labor. Mm. OK, so we're down to our last couple of uh, bits of listener feedback. And finally, I'm going to answer the mystery that we presented a little while ago about who was that person who reached out from the depths of our listener feedback line and said, I disagree, disagree, disagree with Jack, with Jack, with Jack. Well, it turns out he's Tom from Vermont. And he says that uh, the real problem, Jack, is that the politicization of immigration in general by the Republican Party is really what we need to focus on. What makes the United States really different is that unlike most other traditional destination countries, the United States is one of the most unequal democracies on the planet. If you're looking for a more unequal country than the United States, you're probably going to have to look to Turkey. So you're having immigrants coming into a country that easily exploits people for jobs, whether they're immigrants or not immigrants. Okay. So he added one more thing, Jack. Tom said that he believes that until the MAGA wing of the Republican Party um, is diminished, let's put it that way, in its power of the GOP, that he says there's no hope in changing um, certain people's views on immigration. So uh, until that happens, he says really the only thing that could be done is to Increase resources. Actually, do the opposite of what you were saying, Jack. Increase resources for immigrant services. If we're all waiting for the U.S. federal government to respond 
to support immigrants and the consequences on local communities, then we're just going to see a further politicization and pushback against immigration in the United States. It's really time for local cities and states to step up. All right, Jack, what do you think? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, Tom, I, I, I think he makes a very good point, but here's the problem. The money isn't there. Uh, last week, five mayor, maybe it was four mayors, met with, uh, were to meet with President Biden at the last minute, the mayor of New York, Eric Adams, had to pull out because of a financial scandal uh, in, uh, involving one of his aides. Uh, uh, but what were they asking for? They were asking for $5 billion from the federal government. The Biden people have said, well, we'll give you a billion to help uh, settle and deal with this, in, you know, the, the flooding of, of the northern cities from, from the border. We'll, we'll help you. But they wanted four times as much. So, uh, you know, even the local people are saying, we don't have the resources mm -hmm. to deal with it. Help us out, Uncle Sam. And it's a national problem. It's a national failure, and the governor of Texas, who's a hard man for sure, and it's hard to feel anything good about him, he's right when he says, why should we, meaning Texas, bear the brunt? Mm -hmm. Let's let these cities which say we are open to all immigrants, you know, sanctuary cities, we won't turn people in, let's test that. And boy, by God, he's testing it, and these mayors are saying, no, no, we need help. Mm. Well, Jack, so that brings episode 10 of The Jackpot to a close. I'm feeling a little uh, uh, nervous about asking you if you have a teaser for next week since uh, so much is going on and we actually demand quite a bit of you uh, every week, Jack. But do you have one? Do you have a teaser? My crystal ball shows only confusion and cloudiness. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm gonna I shake. wait upon the light. I'm going to shake my magic eight ball and it says, uh, wait, <laughs> wait until next time. Okay, which we will do. So Jack Beatty, On Point News Analyst and the voice of the jackpot. Thanks as always. Thank you so much. This is On Point. <laughs> 